Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm experiencing some car trouble, so I am coming to you today from the Orange County Command Center and uh, glad to have you with us. Now, our motto at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, you just heard it, it's sharing the gospel with clarity and charity. Now, ironically, while the response to our programming is really overwhelmingly positive, and we thank you for that, we are also regularly accused via email uh, and so on of precisely of being uncharitable. And I suspect that's largely due to one simple truth, which is the price of clarity is the risk of insult. to upset someone, especially if you tell the truth plainly. Uh, so the question is, is telling the simple truth really uncharitable? And my answer is no. You know, I, I think to leave someone uh, with their ignorance uninstructed, their doubts uncounseled, their sins unadmonished uh, is the least charitable thing you can do because the salvation of souls is the matter of supreme importance to the church. And, of course, I've often pointed out on this program that traditional Catholicism is the only sector of the church that's actually growing rather than shrinking. And, of course, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's because of nostalgia or perhaps people have this uh, desire for reverent liturgy. And, And I suspect that many do come to the extraordinary form of the Mass for the reverence. But I believe that uh, the real reason that uh, the movement is growing, and just anecdotally, the numbers at my parish have doubled since, uh, you know, post-COVID tide here. I think the real reason that uh, it's growing so well is that traditional Catholics, both clergy and laity, really take seriously the salvation of souls. And and that doesn't mean that there's no, you know, Novus Ordo Catholics who take the salvation of souls seriously. Uh, in fact, it's been my experience uh, that Catholics who attend parishes that are conspicuously Orthodox tend to be more serious believers, you know, just across the board, whether even if they exclusively uh, assist at the ordinary form of the Mass. But the salvation of souls is really the only reason for there to be a church. And yet, once again, plain fact is that the salvation of souls is, <laughs> at best, uh, shall we say, underemphasized in mainstream That, you know, no one's going to be motivated to share the good news until they're first convinced of the bad news. I mean, you know, the, the fact that there's a, a wealth of material coming out of the church today that doesn't even mention the salvation of souls, even obliquely, tells me that there are many in the church who really don't believe that there is anything from which we need to be saved. But that is the message of a false prophet. Which brings us to the readings that began this week, the uh, seventh Sunday of after Pentecost, starting with Paul's epistle to the Romans from chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. Brethren, I speak a human thing because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your num- members to serve uncleanness and iniquity unto iniquity, so now yield your members to serve justice unto sanctification. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free men to justice. What fruit, therefore, had you in those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of them is death. 
But now, being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto sanctification, and the end, life everlasting. For the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God, life everlasting, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, St. Paul clearly cares about the salvation of souls. He's telling the Roman Christians that from now on they should devote themselves every bit as eagerly to the service of God as they were formerly devoted to the service of sin. Because the service of sin uh, is eternal death, but the service of God is everlasting life. For the Christian, the words servants and to serve here mean to give full and unconditional obedience to God, uh, to no longer walk according to your own will. Whereas regarding sin, those same words represent the dominion of the world and the flesh and the devil over the sinner. And Paul could not make a more reasonable request than that Christians should work as enthusiastically on the path of our own salvation as we once did on the way to hell. Therefore, we should often think on the wages of sin, namely eternal death. And when we're tempted to sin, to ask ourselves what, what Paul says, what will I gain? What will I gain in return for my lust or my anger or my pride? Nothing, nothing but eternal death. So the question is, will you inherit eternal life as a Christian who is made a co-heir with Christ in baptism, or shall you fall back into sin and make yourself once again the heir of eternal death? I think we should consider the advice of Ecclesiasticus 740, where it says, in all things, remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin. And now the continuation of the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. This is taken from Matthew 7, 15 through 21. <clears throat> Pardon me. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of false prophets who come to you in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. By their fruits you shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and the evil tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can an evil tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be cut down and shall be cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So, so what does our Lord mean by false prophets? And uh, traditionally, the church says that this generally refers to, to all of the false promises of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But specifically, false prophets are all uh, evil-minded persons who would hide their wicked objectives under the mask of virtue or honesty uh, in order to draw unwary souls into all sorts of shameful sins and misdeeds. So uh, we find such false prophets in uh, the world of politics and education and finance and science, and worst of all, of course, in the church herself. And it's these, these last false prophets of Satan, these wolves of hell, that cause the greatest havoc amongst the flock of Christ. So what to do? Well, our Lord says that good trees produce good fruit, evil trees produce evil fruit, therefore by their fruits you shall know them. He says that not once but twice in this short passage. And he warns that every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be cut down and cast into the fire. Now, 
we're going to be looking at this in more detail a little later on in the program. But for now, you know, it was it was traditional to preach on this gospel for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost that faith alone without good works, uh, that is to say, the mere desire for heaven without the practice of virtue will not save us. Okay, so salvation of souls again. Christ says plainly, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father. And elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, our Lord says, whosoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my mother and sister uh, and brother. So therefore, we should always try and do the will of God in all things in order to secure our salvation through good works. You know, which begs the question, what, what are these works? Uh, the church defines uh, good works as all actions which are done according to the will of God, okay, and for the love of God and by the help of God's grace. And the principal good works are um, uh, fair, uh, prayer, rather, fasting, and alms. I mean, this is what we do uh, emphasize at Lent. But prayer uh, would include all acts belonging to the service of God, and fasting would include all the mortifications of the body and almsgiving, all of the works of mercy. And we're on that topic. There's two kinds of works of mercy, the corporal and the spiritual. And the spiritual works of mercy are the most important, even though they're getting less emphasis right now. A lot more emphasis is being put on the corporal works. But the spiritual works are more important because they have for their object the salvation of souls, right? This is the most important thing. So to admonish the sinner, to instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to comfort the afflicted, to bear wrongs patiently, to forgive injuries and offenses, okay? Everybody on Facebook, take note. And number seven, to pray for the living and the dead. And then, of course, we have the corporal works of mercy, which our Lord talks about in Matthew 25, to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, ransom the captive, or, you know, visit prisoners, to shelter the houseless and to visit the sick and to bury the dead. These 14 works represent love of neighbor in action. However, to render any works meritorious for your salvation, right, five things are necessary. It's the teaching of the church. Number one, the acts must be good in themselves. And that's kind of a no-brainer, but, uh, you know, people are caught up a lot in these days in the idea of the end justifies the means. Not the case. You can't do evil in order to try and bring about a good result. So, number one, good works have to be good. Number two, they must be done by the grace of God. and in the state of grace. They must be done of your own free will. If somebody puts a gun to your head, it doesn't count as a good work. Uh, if somebody's making you do it, and you know, which is why taxes are not charity, okay? And then number five, um, good works must be done with the good intention of pleasing our Lord. All right, so there it is. And we're gonna talk when we come back more about uh, faith and works in regard to salvation. But the, the important thing, because, you know, our, some of our separated brethren uh, listen to the false prophets of the Reformation and have the idea that salvation comes by faith alone uh, without any works. Okay. But the Catholic Church teaches that both faith and works are necessary for salvation because that's the teaching of Jesus Christ. All right. Although without faith, it's impossible to please God. Jesus requires faith working through love. And that is no nonsense. All right, lots more when we come back. No Nonsense Catholic here on Virtue Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us.
Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Warnell. Great to have you with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So we were talking about Jesus warning against false prophets and the importance of faith and good works for salvation. Uh, many of our separated brethren, of course, believe in the doctrine of sola fides, the idea that we are saved by faith alone. And they would claim that Catholics are really uh, Pelagians who try to work their way to heaven. So, uh, you know, approaching this topic with uh, with a Protestant or a fundamentalist evangelical, uh, it's important to um, convey that the Catholic Church does not teach that we earn our salvation uh, through good works. Okay, that good works offered by God uh, or offered to God by someone in a state of grace participate in the works and merits of Jesus Christ. And it's only these supernatural good works that will be rewarded by God. And and Jesus makes this plain when he says the last judgment is going to be based on or based on works of charity, right? Uh, really, the corporal works of mercy the, to, you know, give uh, food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, and so forth. Um, that was in Matthew 25 and Matthew 19. Someone asked him, "What must I do to gain eternal life?" And our Lord Jesus said, "Accept me into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior." Uh, no, he didn't say that at all, did he? What he said was, "Keep the commandments." For the Son of Man will repay everyone according to his works, Matthew 16, 27. Uh, Further, following the teaching of the Apostle Paul, Catholics believe that each will receive wages in proportion to his labor, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name, Hebrews 6, 10. Simply put, the Bible does not teach that faith alone justifies. It's not sufficient for salvation. When St. Paul wrote, we consider that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law in Romans 3.28. He was referring to the works of the Old Testament law, and he cited circumcision as an example in Romans 3.30. But elsewhere in that same letter, St. Paul speaks of the just judgment of God, quote, who will repay everyone according to his works. Eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through perseverance and good works but wrath and fury to those who selfishly disobey the truth and obey wickedness. The biblical slam dunk, of course, comes from St. James, who said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I mean, there's the, the $64 question. And he answers, see how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For just as a body without a spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That's all in James chapter 2, verses uh, 14 and 24 through 26. So what that means is that the only place in the New Testament, the only place in the Bible where the words faith and alone are together, the words not by are right in front of them. And of course, strictly speaking, God doesn't owe us anything. Even after obeying all the commandments, we must still say we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what we are obliged to do. See, ultimately, Catholic Church teaches that we are saved by grace. Our Lord on the Holy Cross paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And that initial grace of justification is a free gift that we receive through the sacrament of baptism. But Christ requires, according to St. Paul, faith working through love. So that doctrine of sola fides, or salvation by faith alone, and its companion doctrine of once saved, always saved, are an example of the teaching of false prophets. Like I said, 
clarity, you know, the, the, the price of clarity is the risk of insult. You know, but it's well to remember that all of the Protestant reformers were once Catholic. Our good Lord said, beware of false prophets who come to you in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. By your fruits, you shall know them. You know, I mentioned in the last segment that the church identifies false prophets traditionally, um, generally speaking, uh, as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then wolves in sheep's clothing, which we find not only in religion, but also in the world of politics, education, finance, science, etc. And, you know, for an example, we can start with science. Today, um, those who would question the, the true nature of the COVID-19 pandemic or, or global warming or the, or the so-called gay gene or any of the, the current scientific sacred cows are quickly dismissed for the crime of, quote unquote, not believing in science. OK, well, let's get this out there. I, I believe in science, OK, to the degree that I accept that there are certain demonstrable physical laws in, in the universe. Right. If you get enough heat and fuel and oxygen together, you will get fire every time. OK, I'm on board. The problem is that too many people today for, for them to believe in science is like a, a religious faith. You know, at, at that point, science becomes ideology. Science becomes idolatry, really. And the scientists uh, who promote it, false prophets. So I'm going to take climate change as an example. Now, when I was a schoolboy back in 1970, science prophesied that we would be in an ice age by the year 2000. Then when I was in high school in 1976, science predicted that the, uh, the catastrophic effects of that coming ice age would cause World War III to break out by the year 2000. But as the world wasn't really getting any cooler, uh, in 1989, global cooling was swapped for global warming. And the new prophecy became that by the year 2000, the melting ice caps would cause entire nations to be wiped off the map because of the rising sea levels. Uh, a year later, in 1990, the prophets of science warned us that we had only until the year 2000 to save the rainforests, or they would all be gone. Now, of course, when the year 2000 finally came along, all these predictions were proven wrong. However, the prophets of science continued to prophesy right there in the year 2000. They told us that snow would soon become a thing of the past. Uh, in 2007, they prophesied that global warming would cause fewer hurricanes. In 2008, the false prophets foretold that the Arctic would be ice free by 2013. In 2012, they prophesied that global warming would now cause more hurricanes because they said it would cause fewer, but there were more instead. And by 2014, those who pointed out that all the hysterical climate change prophecies had been spectacularly wrong were forcibly drowned out with this new mantra of the false prophets, the science is settled, which is as unscientific a notion as one can have regarding an unproven hypothesis. You remember Galileo, right? Um, people think, most people think that Galileo ran afoul of the Inquisition uh, for teaching heliocentrism. Uh, put over simply that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. But that is in fact not true. Copernicus posited the theory before Galileo was born. Galileo himself learned about heliocentrism at a Catholic university. What got Galileo in trouble was not teaching the theory of heliocentrism, but misrepresenting it as an established fact, which it was not at the time. It was not, and, and at that time could not be proven. And so 
you know, you, you, in a more rational age, the powers that be recognized that presenting an unproven scientific hypothesis as a fact could lead to all sorts of trouble. Just for example, some unscrupulous poli politicians uh, might start legislating on the basis of an unproven theory uh, to justify favoring certain policies of their own party or to please their big donors. Universities might start treating such uh, hypotheses more seriously than they, than they deserve or even go so far as to falsify their findings in order to acquire ever more lucrative government grants or, or to advance and, and finance their own agendas. And, and that's, just, that's just one possible explanation for the many ridiculous predictions of the last 50 years that we just enumerated. Unless we forget that those false prophecies represent millions upon millions of dollars in fruitless research that might have been spent more productively elsewhere. Trying to prove something or give evidence for something for an ideological reason and not to discover the truth. Now, hypothetically, let, let's say that uh, some unscrupulous politicians, I mean, just to take this to its, to its uh, logical conclusion, in, in order to advance a, a certain globalist agenda, let's say that they would go so far as to conspire to shut down the entire economy of the Western world over the threat of a killer virus that is in reality, reality no more dangerous than a seasonal flu. And let's assume that as a consequence, this absurdly transparent and totalitarian power grab would destroy the livelihood of millions of productive people and cripple entire industries and produce dangerous shortages and cause untold deaths by suicide and starvation and curable diseases that went undiagnosed and untreated. Let's imagine that at the same time, their willing accomplices in education and media canceled and censored or, or shouted down all valid questions and criticisms by chanting in unison, the science is settled. I suspect that if someone had prophesied such a scenario way back in, say, I don't know, 2018, everybody would have thought them insane. But as you know, this is not a hypothetical. This actually happened. Now, bad as these false prophets are, the wolves in sheep's clothing in the church, of course, are far worse because their false prophecies directly endanger souls. And our Lord told us how to recognize them. He said, by their fruits, you shall know them. And since Vatican II, the, uh, the wolves of hell have been very active in an unprecedented way. And I'm sure you're only too well aware of the crisis of faith and morals in the Catholic Church from mass attendance to vocations to catechesis, uh, by virtually every measurable standard, the church has been in decline, sharp decline, for decades. And at the same time, we've been rocked by the worst kind of scandals at every level, including the very highest. And who, say, in the middle of the 1950s, could have imagined that 60 years down the line, the bishops of the United States would be locked in a, an acrimonious debate over whether or not it is their duty to admonish the sinner. Because they can't seem to agree on whether or not to deny communion to notorious public heretics who support the wholesale murder of children. This is one of the, one of the four sins that cry to heaven for justice, to kill the innocent. And also, you know, uh, another of those is, is the sin of Sodom. 
And yet we see that being uh, celebrated, promoted, even by those in the church. Now, of course, maybe in their defense, I can say that 60 years ago, nobody could have imagined that a, a majority of Catholic wouldn't even know the basic you know, fundamentals uh, of the teaching of the church. And that would include the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But unfortunately, that also is the bishop's fault, <laughs> since they are ultimately responsible. They are the primary teachers in their respective dioceses. Remember what Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. And of course, at the same time, as the Catholic faith has gone into free fall, the hierarchy has been busily trying to fix things by continuing to dismantle the church's traditional institutions. Uh, case in point would be when Paul VI suppressed um, the minor priestly orders back in 1972. And uh, I'll talk about that and more and what happened as a result when uh, we return with more no-nonsense Catholic uh, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So stay tuned, stick with us through these messages, and we shall return. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Our Lord said, by their fruits you shall know them. And we've been talking about how uh, Catholic Church uh, has gone into, uh, the, the Catholic faith, rather, has kind of gone into free fall in the last 60 years, while the hierarchy of the Church seems uh, uh, bent on dismantling the Church's traditional institutions. And uh, with the, the apparent result of helping the, uh, the free fall of the church to accelerate. Right? As I, again, by the fruits you shall know them. And um, right before the break, I brought up a case in point in the suppression of Paul VI of the minor priestly orders back in 1972. Now, at the same time, he also invented two brand new uh, installed, quote-unquote, lay ministries of lector and acolyte. Now, I suspect that very few Catholics remember that these new lay ministries in which ministers were installed rather than uh, ordained um, were exclusive to men or that they were invented by Pope Paul precisely to fill a void created by his own suppression of the minor orders of lector and acolyte. But you know, naturally, I, I say naturally because virtually all the post-conciliar changes, uh, the instructions were universally ignored. And I think lay Catholic men, by and large, just simply had no interest in usurping priestly roles in regard to reading the scriptures or leading prayers or, or performing the services of an altar boy. And since it was still unthinkable at the time to try and officially install a woman in a church ministry, they just dropped the so-called installation pretty much altogether and simply welcomed lay women into the roles of lector, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, and last but not least, acolyte or altar girl. And even though I suspect that the, uh, the the newly revised installed ministry now under Pope Francis, the newly installed ministry of acolyte is, is more like that of a sacristan, that role is largely already filled by women anyway. In fact, as you know perfectly well, in the Novus Ordo Church of now, while there are some men involved in these ministries, they are literally dominated by women and girls. You know, all that was missing is for women to be officially installed in these various ministries, including the newly formed Ministry of Catechesis. And I suspect that making catechesis an installed lay ministry 
is an attempt at central control over the content of catechesis. You know, apparently when Pope Francis says that he hates clericalism, uh, you know, you keep using that word, as Inigo Montoya said, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. You know, he says he wants a more democratic church, and yet he's continually um, pursuing policy, policies that, that uh, show that he wants more central control virtually over every aspect of Catholic life. So the thing is, since women already dominate these ministries, why should the official installment matter? More on that in a moment. But I want to take a look first at the de definition of the word ministry. Ministry means the work of religious ministers. Ministry in the Catholic Church is a privileged term for what the clergy do, primarily the administration of the sacraments. Now, ministry doesn't necessarily exclude lay people, but the term is proper to the work of bishops, priests, and deacons. So-called lay ministers are a, no a novelty, a modern novelty. And, you know, speaking of novelties, a good one, I think, in this case, the, the Vatican II document, Apostolicum Axiositantem was itself a novelty in the sense that for the first time in the history of history, um, a church council produced a document devoted entirely to the vocation of the laity. And I think it's significant that this document, which was from Vatican II, never once uses the word ministry in regard to the laity. Rather, it uses the word apostolate, which means the work of an apostle. You know, Pope Francis some of his more modernist bishops consistently accuse uh, faithful Catholics of that old kind of clericalism. Uh, but merely, I think, to speak of lay ministry is itself a new form of clericalism that, that actually undermines the authentic role of Catholic lay people. You know, liberal Catholics often claim that, that the only role uh, for the laity in the preconciliar church was to pay, pray, and obey. And, you know, I suspect that there is a certain truth to the claim that, that the preconciliar church had fallen victim to a kind of ecclesial paternalism, okay, where our spiritual fathers became like parents that encouraged their kids never to grow up by promising to always take care of them, right? Consequently, preconciliar lay Catholics generally did not actively pursue holiness or, or will work to develop a, a mature and well-informed faith, okay? That was the clericalism that, that uh, was always being taken aim at. And, but unfortunately, of course, that made them easy prey for what happened just after the council. Because clericalism, as I say, it didn't go away uh, so much as it was replaced by a new form. I, I recently read an article, I think from last month, by uh, Chris Ferrara, where he quotes Paul VI to the effect that, quote, the important words of the Second Vatican Council are newness and updating. The word newness has been given to us as an order, as a program. So newness for the sake of newness, says Ferrara. Newness be, just because it's new. A sentiment, he says, that could not be more alien to the role of the papacy as the conservator of what has been handed down. And maybe it would have been different if more lay people, and clergy too for that matter, uh, had bothered to read the Vatican II documents. But that old style of clericalism was still in full swing directly after the council. So much so that pretty much all the post-conciliar changes, right, the stuff that happened after Vatican II, like the new mass and communion in the hand and so on and so forth, these things were largely accepted uncritically by those Catholics, you know, who simply didn't, you know, abandon the practice of the faith, which they did by millions. Um, but 
the authentic call of Vatican II, the, the, the universal call to holiness, the call for lay Catholics to be salt and light of the culture was simply ignored. With the result, I think that lay people largely drank that post-conciliar Kool-Aid that living their faith meant taking an active liturgical role at mass. You know, they became lectors and, and liturgers, uh, liturgists and, and, you know, uh, uh, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. And they got indoctrinated into, you know, constantly advocating for more and more lay involvement in the liturgy. While at the same time, you know, plenty of New Order priests did just the opposite. Thinking, I, I would say mistakenly, that it was somehow their job to engage the culture, which Vatican II specifically said was the, the job of lay people. And priests tended to do that by, you know, just as lay people were getting clericalized, they were kind of laicizing themselves, you know, taking off their collars, not wearing their, their clerical suits, you know, relinquishing their, their sacred liturgical duties to lay people, and again, especially to lay women. In other words, both clergy and laity turned Vatican II's vision for engaging the culture on its head by abandoning the church's perennial teaching that each of the members of the body of Christ have their proper role, is what St. Paul was on about in 1 Corinthians 12. You know, just like the members and the organs of a body, the, the ordained and the laity have their roles. You know, they've got their role, we've got ours. And it is for the clergy to celebrate the sacraments and for us to develop an apostolate in the world that goes beyond the four walls of the parish church. We need the clergy to be clergy, to minister to us, to celebrate the sacraments with reverence and dignity, and to teach, govern, and sanctify us so that we can go out and sanctify the world. But, but what are we getting instead? <laughs> you know, And I think this, this new um, uh, plan to invest lay women, install them as official church ministers, um, you know, by Pope Francis and company, I, it, it has caused a video from a few years ago to resurface circulating again on social media, um, which is a video of seven women in New Jersey committing the grave sacrilege of simulating the sacrament of holy orders. Because clearly the, the official involvement of lay women in quote unquote ministry is being seen by the advocates of, of women's ordination as a step in that direction. I'm not, you know, it's, I don't think that this is a shock to anyone. I don't think I'm, I'm not making anything up, you know. And I remember a, a similar event took place a, during the Obama administration when I was blogging, and, and I blogged about it at the time. And what I said in regard to women's ordination still applies. You know, I, back in 2012, I wrote that as an advocate of Christian chivalry, I find it distasteful to publicly criticize a lady. But any woman that would claim to be an ordained priest is clearly no lady. And these so-called ordinations uh, merely demonstrate the, the manifest rejection of the teaching of the church and teaching of Christ. The ongoing claim of, of these liberal feminist type Catholics is that while the ordinations, quote unquote, of these women are not strictly legal, they are yet valid. Okay, this is a lie. This is these are the words of a false prophet. Any Catholic second grader ought to be able to tell you that a sacrament requires two things for validity, namely proper matter and form. So, for example, you can't be validly baptized in peanut butter or with the words in the name of the creator, the redeemer and the sanctifier. 
And that's because water constitutes the proper matter for the sacrament of baptism. And the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, constitute the proper form. Without matter and form, no sacrament. Likewise with holy orders. And the requisite matter and form demand a validly ordained bishop laying hands on a baptized man. The sacraments were instituted by Jesus Christ in a Catholic. And just because some splinter group decides to sacrilegiously uh, simulate the ordination of women, obviously they also do not have the power to change the matter and form of the sacrament. Therefore, all such quote-unquote ordinations are not just illicit and mortally sinful, but also conclusively invalid and always will be. And that's no nonsense. Our society and many in the church have strayed far from Christ, but Christ does not change. Our Lord instituted a male-only priesthood. And as with all the wolves in sheep clothing and all the other enemies of Christ, those who desire this, this logical contradiction of women priests, they can heap as much ridicule on the church as they like, but that's not going to change anything. It's like we read in the book of Numbers uh, 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, and he does not change his mind like humans do. Such Fidelity to Christ and his church, of course, is obviously meaningless to these ladies. And, you know, one might legitimately ask, if, if you really want to be ordained priestess, why not just become an old Catholic or an Episcopalian? Why not join some other uh, non-Catholic group? And the simple answer is, because then the ordinations would stop being news. Woman becomes Catholic priest is a man's bites dog headline that gives them an undeserved platform, whereas bitter feminist leaves the church while that's no news at all. Okay, we'll be back in just a sec. Welcome back. Uh, final round of No Nonsense Catholic this week. Uh, talking about the uh, false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, the scandal of so-called women's ordination. But, you know, what's more scandalous by far is those members of the clergy, be they priests or bishops, who support this sort of thing. Surely they must know that it's impossible, unless, of course, they do not really hold the Catholic faith. And I think that's where we hit the crux of the matter. And please, don't be scandalized if I ask whether, you know, certain highly visible and or highly ranking clergy really have the Catholic faith. Because that's only an echo of our Lord's own question in Luke 18, 8. He says, when the Son of Man comes, when he returns, will he find faith on earth? You know, I often take solace in the fact that there is one and only one sector of the church that's growing instead of shrinking, and that that's traditional Catholicism. And as I mentioned before, the ranks of those who regularly assist at the traditional Latin Mass uh, have doubled since the advent of COVID time. You know, I told Cy Kellett uh, on Catholic Answers a few years ago that uh, the traditional movement would continue to grow because traditional Catholics beget more traditional Catholics, whereas the mainstream church is going to continue to shrink because liberal Catholics beget non-Catholics. You know, but there's more to it. It's, it's not just the mass that you attend. And I normally don't do this, but I, I'm, I'm going to quote something at length was an article that was actually posted um, at the Fatima Perspectives website by F. Faust back in uh, December of 2019. And it was called The Way They Were Not, or The Way We Were Not. 
<clears throat> and he makes these remarks. He said, there's a notion prevalent among many traditional Catholics that it was the loss of the Tridentine Mass and sound catechesis following the Second Vatican Council that led to the present problems in the church. It follows then that the restoration of pre-Vatican II Catholicism will remedy the situation. But will it? We had all of the things that traditionalists now long for before Vatican II, and they proved unavailing. We tend to forget that the men who suppressed the Tridentine Mass were bishops and priests who had been saying that Mass for decades, in some cases for the greater part of a lifetime. Yet they not only abandoned the Mass of their ordination, in many cases they became its sworn enemy. And the abandonment of clear pre-Vatican II catechesis and the imposition of progressive doctrines of a rather fuzzy nature was the work of men who had studied Thomism during their seminary training, along with dogmatic theology. Now, I would point out that uh, to a man, the Council Fathers of Vatican II also solemnly swore the oath against modernism. But here's the point. Mr. Faust says, they did not lack knowledge. They lacked love. For we do not cast aside that which we love. We cherish it and protect it. External structures, he says, no matter how admirable, remain external unless they are loved. Sanctification of a man comes from grace and his internal disposition. If those who spent their lives saying the Tridentine Mass really loved it, they would not have abandoned it so easily. The same is true of the laity who accepted the changes so passively. Nothing that was truly dear to them was being taken away. Religion without love is mere habit. It does not sanctify. I suspect that these are tough words to hear, uh, and especially for a lot of people who are looking to the Tridentine Mass, to the, to the extraordinary form of the Mass, as the answer to all our problems. You know, he said, though, uh, those who genuinely love the faith will endure, often despite church leadership and even in the face of its attacks, but their number will be small. And again, I would uh, add that that's consistent with what Benedict XVI said, I mean, years before he became Pope, when he was still Joseph Ratzinger, that the church of the future would be stronger, but smaller. And then back to Mr. Faust, he says, the world and the church appear to be undergoing a sea change. No kidding. Values are inverted. Words are emptied of their traditional meaning. And Orwellian newspeak has become the lingua franca of the new world order, which the Pope and hierarchy appear eager to serve. The present state of the church and the world seem very dark. But for those who love our Lord, he says, it presents an opportunity. With the loss of external structures and support, we have to rely more on our own relationship with God, which is threatened now in so many ways. We have to fight for our love without losing the tenderness of that love in the struggle. And the fight must be carried on within more, uh, within more than without. For the enemy of love is selfishness. And this is consistent with what Our Lady of America, which, you know, as I pointed out uh, last year, December last year, has recently been approved for private devotion here in the United States of America. And Our Lady, you know, appeared to, to a, a religious sister here in the U.S. of A. 
and said that we need to be devoted to the indwelling of the Holy Trinity, right? The, the state of grace that God lives in, in your soul is in a temple. It says we have to recall our Lord's words, the kingdom of God is within you. And so he uh, continues, the true measure of spiritual progress is how well we love one another. It may be pleasant to imagine a past in which all was well with the church. The convents and seminaries were full. The mass was Latin. Doctrine was certain and sound. But we should recall how quickly all of this was swept away and think honestly and deeply about why this occurred. In the end, all that we will be able to keep is that which we have loved. That's pretty. That's a pretty profound statement. You know, St. Paul very famously in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells us, and now, meaning in this life, and now there remain faith, hope, and charity, or love, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. And why is that? Well, because when we die and go to judgment, well, you won't need faith anymore because you will have knowledge. And you also won't need hope anymore because you will either be in heaven or in purgatory being, uh, you know, uh, purified before your entrance into heaven. And so your hopes will have been fulfilled or you will have to, you know, march through the, the gates of hell over which is the big sign that says abandon hope all ye who enter here. No more hope for you and, and fulfilled hope for, for the blessed. The only thing that lasts forever is love. And so Mr. Foss concludes, quote, popes and presidents and prime ministers and dictators will come and go. We are not answerable for them. When we stand for judgment, Jesus will ask us one thing. Did you love others as I loved you? Go back and reread Matthew 25. This is his commandment, the way, the truth, and the life, and it is not fulfilled in the past or the future or in erecting some edifice in the world. It can only be um, lived each day in each encounter with another, in each thought that we nourish and word that we speak. So let's not spend too much time thinking about the way we were, but look instead at the way we are. For we have been promised that if we seek the kingdom of God, if we seek first the kingdom of God, all else will be given us. If we seek first to bring about an external circumstance, no matter how admirable it appears, we may lose the kingdom of God, even if we succeed. It gave me a lot to think about reading that, you know, because for years I've been giving talks about the quest for spiritual perfection. And, and, this is what the great saints and the doctors and the spiritual writers that, that I love so much, Bernard of Clairvaux, Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Akempis, this is what they've insisted on. But of course, they were only following our blessed Lord who said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So our efforts to fulfill the petition of the Our Father, that kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, building St. Augustine's city of God or what the medievals called the, the earthly Jerusalem, what the Arthurian stories refer to as Camelot, what St. John Paul II called the civilization of love, external projects all. They have at their root the quest for spiritual perfection, the love of God, what Vatican II called the universal call to holiness. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, that we have to do anything extraordinary. But simply, as St. Paul says, 
Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or again, as our Lord himself said, if you love me, keep the commandments. You see, we no longer have to live in this world, uh, in this in this kingdom of this world, which is a kingdom of selfishness and darkness and sin, because through grace, through through sanctifying grace, through the quest for Christian perfection, we can live in the kingdom of God right now, no matter which mass you attend, or even if you uh, are prevented from attending mass at all, no matter who's sitting on the chair of Peter and what their policies might be, no matter who's in the Oval Office and whether or not the bishops uh, deign to give him communion. No one can take the kingdom of God away from you because the kingdom of God is within you. We say that the Holy Spirit dwells in us as in a temple. And we also know that there are three persons, but only one God. And so whatever we say about the actions of one of the persons of God, it applies to them all. That was what Our Lady of America was pointing out, is that the Trinity dwells in you when you are in a state of grace. That is something that cannot be replaced. We need the church. We need the sacraments. We need the grace that the church provides for us. And we need to pray, 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 and do everything we can to support the good um, clergy and the lay apostolates that are working for the salvation of souls. We just need to remember that axiom of the early church. Uh, salus animarum suprema lex. The salvation of souls is the supreme law. And this, of course, is what is going to lead us to um, the heavenly kingdom. The kingdom of God that is within us will be the kingdom where we will be able to spend eternity beholding God, you know, in the face. That is my prayer for everybody listening right now. And I want to thank you so much for your support of Virgin Most Powerful and listening to us and keeping us broadcasting because without your help, we couldn't do it. And I'm, I'm talking about your prayers, number one, and of course, also your financial help as well. So don't be afraid to visit VMPR online. Go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, vmpr.org. You can hit that donate button and help us out. Keep us in your prayers. And until next time, thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.